We're in Isaiah 41, and we're going to pick up right where we left off Sunday in the Court of Reason. Chapter 40 all the way through this first section. Remember, there are three sections in the last part of Isaiah, from chapter 40 through chapter 66. Three different sections, nine chapters each, 27 chapters in all. And across these next nine, chapters 40 through 48, the Lord is providing evidence. And He is validating His testimony, His claim to be the one and only God. And He goes head to head. He he calls out the idols. He calls out the pagan gods. He calls out those in Israel who are following after and trusting in pagan gods and idols. And He says, bring forth your proof. Show me the evidence. Tell us something that's going to happen before it happens. Let us watch it happen. And then we'll shake and shudder and know that you're God. And then He goes about doing that Himself. Talking about what's going to happen before it happens. And then bringing it to pass to prove Himself. So we're in the court of reason. Remember, the purpose is not for God to judge man. Not in this court. This court is for man to judge God. To look at God. He's going to lay it out before us and say, okay, what are God's intentions toward His people Israel, and what are God's intentions toward you and toward me as people He's created and put on this earth? What do you expect out of us, God? And and what are we to believe about you? He lays it all out here in this marvelous courtroom. Verse 1 of chapter 41, and we read through the first ten verses on Sunday, I realize, but just look at that first verse again. Islands, listen to me in silence. And let the peoples gain new strength. Let them come forward. Let them speak. That is, ask your questions, your queries, your your comments. And let us come together for judgment. Mishpat. Mishpat meaning the tribunal or a forum to discuss and to look at the truth. Something our government is not doing. Something our president today chose not to do. And if you didn't hear in the news, President Obama finally, after stopping and starting and stuttering for several years now, finally came out in support of gay marriage. So this is where he stands now. And so he's made this very clear, this is where he stands. And I I agree with what John said when I came into the barn. I just wish the government would get out of the church's business. I don't really care what the president thinks about gay marriage. What I care is what does the Lord think? And what does He teach? Let's go back to the standards of righteousness. But again, here in the court of reason the Lord lays out why we should consider His Word above and over all others. Why should we believe Him rather than anybody else? And He gives us proof, and He gives testimony, and it's marvelous. He says, come reason with Me. He says, comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. He's the God of all comfort. And so He starts, even before the gavel falls and the evidence is presented, He calls out comfort. This is where I'm coming from. This is what I want to bring to you, my people. In chapter 41, verse 10, and again, we covered those first 10 verses, took a look at that as God called us into this court. And in verse 10, He says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God, the God of all comfort, is calling us to Himself because He wants to be with us, as we talked about Sunday, the withness of Jesus. To be with Him in all things. It's why He said back in verse 4, I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last I am He. 
Now the next three times it's spoken in Scripture, he'll say, I'm the first and the last. Two more times in Isaiah. One time in the, in the book of Revelation as Jesus speaks the same words. I'm the first and the last. But here I just love that. I am with the last. And so here we are. And here he is. With the last at the end of days. That should bring great comfort to us. When we turn on the news and we see politicians making foolish errors, we should be comforted in knowing God is with us. I am with you always, Jesus said, to the very end of the age. Not to close to the end of the age. Not through most of the age. Through the whole thing. To the very end, I am with you. And then, you know what happens at the end for those who are with Him? He calls. We rise. And we are with Him forever. It's marvelous. So that's the plan. The witness of Jesus. But now we shift. We shift our focus a little bit and we are reminded that He is also Gadosh Israel, the Holy One of Israel. And God's going to focus His attention now on Israel. Again, we're grafted in, so these promises are ours. We can come alongside, not instead of, but along with Israel to receive these promises. But three times in chapter 41 alone, He is called Gadosh Israel, the Holy One of Israel. And we've talked a lot about that. Remember, that's a favorite name of God that Isaiah uses throughout the book. Three times he'll use it in chapter 41. Eight times across these next nine chapters. Gadosh Israel, Gadosh Israel. I am the Holy One of Israel. And he asserts himself by that name. For now it is Israel that he is calling to reason in the court of reason. So picking up in verse 11. He says, Behold, all those who are angered at you will be shamed and dishonored. Those who contend with you will be as nothing and will perish. (coughs) (laughs) 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 You know, let me pull back a second. Christians in Iran, I pray God's protection over. And I pray His blessing upon them. And those who would come to faith, those who are on the edge, that that they would have time to find faith in Jesus. But the leadership and those who are set against God's people Israel. Boom. Okay, so, verse 12. You will seek those who quarrel with you, but you will not find them. Those who war with you will be as nothing and non-existent. For I am the Lord your God, who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Why does Israel or should Israel have no fear of Iran? Or any other nation? Because God is their God. Because I I will uphold you, he says. I will help you. Look to me. Come on, guys. Reason with me, he says, Israel. And he would say it even today. I I wish the, the, the Knesset would gather and focus on Isaiah chapter 41. Just read this. I wish Benjamin Netanyahu would come back to the Scriptures and look at this and go, you know, we don't have to worry. We have to dedicate ourselves to the Father. The Holy One of Israel, I am with you. He says, do not fear, verse 14, you worm, Jacob. (laughs) You men of Israel, I will help you, declares the Lord. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. What a great promise. God says, Israel, the day is coming when your detractors, your critics, the enemies, they'll no longer even exist. You'll look for them and you won't find them. Do you look for enemies that no longer exist? That's kind of a weird human thing. 
God saves us and then we go back looking just to see if it's still there. You know, that old sin or, or those challenges or those threats or the things that we're stressed about. Oh, I gave it all to Jesus, but I wonder if it's still there. <laughs> You're going to look for them, but they're not there. You will not find them. And what God is doing now for Israel is saying, I'm promising you this coming kingdom. There is an age coming, Israel. That age we've talked about many times in here. When you will be at such peace, there will be no such thing as an enemy of Israel. A detractor. There are not going to be any activists trying to breach your shores. It's just not going to happen. And God is going to do this, and let me put it this way, He has to do this. God has put Himself in a position of having no other choice but to bring His kingdom to bear. Because it's in His very nature, once He said something, He has to do it. Now, I'm a little different. <laughs> I tell my children this all the time. Just because I said it doesn't mean I have to do it. Do as I say, not as I do. I am human. I'm a man. And I sometimes have to retract what I've said. Sometimes I get excited and passionate about something. And I blurt it out there. And then i got to pull back a bit and say, wait, okay, now I didn't really quite mean that. Not the Lord. If He speaks it, He means it. And it will happen. Numbers 23.19 tells us, God is not man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? And that's why I said a couple Wednesdays back, we don't anthropomorphize God. Or at least we shouldn't. Don't look at God and judge him as though he were a man. Well, what if he doesn't keep his word? He can't help but keep his word. He has to. He's God. We don't have to worry when we put our trust in Him. Now, again, I know this is shocking to you that that I'm flawed and fallible and capable of breaking my word, but God can't do it. He cannot break His word. You know, and and perhaps we ought to think about that when we go to the prophetic scriptures and we read the things that He says He's going to do. It's not, hmm, well, I wonder if He's going to follow through on that. There's no wondering. Of course He is. He cannot do otherwise. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, Paul said. Romans eleven twenty nine. Now that's all well and good, but I, I, I got to ask: When was the last time you called someone you loved a worm? I'm reading along, going, "Yes, yes, yes, you worm. Do not fear, you worm, Jacob. It gets it gets worse than that. He, it says, you men, Israel, and I think the translators were just." I mean, you can translate men men in the Hebrew, I guess. It's one of the options. The Hebrew word there is mot. You men of Israel, you mot of Israel. It's one of five words in the biblical Hebrew that can be used for man. The other words are Adam, Adam, um, Ish, uh, Enosh, Geber, and the fifth one, not used as often, but used occasionally, is mot. So it can be applied to man, but it also means, and and the reason why it's applied to man is it means few, small in number, minuscule, or get this, it can also mean maggot. Now, I, I really don't claim to be a Bible scholar, but I'm telling you, in the context of verse 14, he just said, do not fear you worm Jacob. I don't think now he's elevating to you men of Israel. I think he's saying you maggot of Israel. You louse. Do not fear you worm Jacob. You maggots of Israel. 
How is that comforting, Lord? (laughs) Comfort my people. Comfort those worms and maggots. What's going on here? It's not a sacred slur. It's a divine compassion. Because what God is doing, and, and sometimes our culture gets in the way a little bit, but when He raises the word worm or the word maggot or louse here, He's not degrading them. He's talking perspective. And from the perspective of an all-awesome, holy Creator God, man is like a maggot to us. That would be probably somewhere a close comparison except that we can't create worms. Okay, But us compared to a worm might be God compared to a worm or a maggot. And when he looks at Israel, he's talking about their frailty. He's talking about the fact that they are minuscule, and they are. Even as a nation in the world today, tiny Israel. And so he says, don't fear, little ones, tiny little people, indefensible as worms, squirmy and small as maggots. Don't, don't be afraid. Again, this is, I believe, coming from a place of divine compassion. And I really, I had to think through this for a bit because it's important that we not misrepresent God, especially when it comes to Him calling down or calling out His people. What do you mean? Moses did it. Moses misrepresented the intentions of God. Now, we could skip right over this verse and just go, do not fear, you worm Jacob. Wow, God's really ticked off at Israel. No, He's not. And the entire context of these opening chapters of the latter part of Isaiah tells us God is not ticked off with His people. He loves His people. He is compassionate for His people. And He's sending out words of comfort and reason, not words of shame and shaking the finger and anger. And that's where Moses got it wrong. The second time God told him, I want you to get some water out of the rock for the people. Remember the story, Numbers chapter 20. Moses is there with the people and they're complaining again as they often did and they were dying of thirst. Moses, we're thirsty. We need some water here. And and God says, Moses, what I want you to do now, because we've already done this once. He struck the rock the first time. Remember that? I want you to strike the rock. He said the first time. And water will flow from the rock. But this time, don't strike it. Speak to it. Just speak to the rock and water will flow for the people. Well, Moses is ticked off. He's tired of the complaining of the people. And so he takes his staff and he goes over to the rock and he says, You're a bunch of morons! Look it up. The Hebrew word that he uses when he calls them rebels, you rebels, is the root word for moron. He's angry with the people. He strikes the rock. And God, out of His grace and compassion, causes the water to flow. But He also takes away Moses' passport to the promised land. That is the instance where Moses was barred from entry. Where the closest he would get would be Mount Nebo, Pisgah, looking down into Israel. Because he misrepresented God. God was not angry with the people. God was compassionate for the people. But Moses was angry, and so he blurted out. And in that misrepresentation, did a wrong thing. And gang, we need to be sure we don't make the same mistake in this world. Don't misrepresent God. There are times where righteous anger is absolutely appropriate. But let me tell you something. If you have a choice between righteous anger or grace, choose grace. That's an important part, so we'll let him know when he comes back. If you have a choice between responding to someone in what, what you sense to be righteous anger or responding in grace and you're not sure you're on the fence as to which way to go, Err to the side of grace. Every time. 
If you're going to make a mistake, let's make a mistake being too compassionate because that is far more the heart of our God. Well, Moses missed it. I don't want us to miss it. And this is the context of a God of compassion who calls them worm, you worm Israel, you men, you maggots of Israel, you worm Jacob. But there's something else you got to note here. As God is gently emphasizing His perspective, His supreme greatness over their smallness, He also refers to Jacob as a worm. As a worm. The Hebrew for worm there is tolat. It's the Tola worm. And we've talked about the Tola worm. And if you weren't here for the study we did in Psalm 22, you need to go listen to that. It's one of the most, I think, significant studies that we've done. And Psalm 22 is one of the most significant prophecies of the crucifixion of Jesus in all of Scripture. And in that Psalm, Psalm 22, verse 6, Jesus says, I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. I am a Tola. I'm a Tola worm, he says. And right here, God now calls Israel the same name, Utola, Jacob. Why does he do that? Well, there's a whole story about the Tola worm. I, I'm not going to talk about it tonight. You need to listen to it. Psalm 22. But Paul says in Philippians 2.8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus not only became humbled as a man, He humbled below the level of a man to the place of common criminal. And he said, I'm as low as a worm here. People despise me. And they nailed him up on the cross. And more than two centuries, think about this, more than two centuries before the Spirit of Christ calls Jacob a worm here, the same Spirit of Christ has already proclaimed himself, his future self, to be a worm. So he's not calling Israel anything he hasn't already called himself. And to me that is so significant because Jesus intimately identified with the frailty of his own people. We've talked about the fact he never asks you to do anything that he hasn't done himself. Well, he never calls them anything that he's not willing to take on himself. He never judges anyone beyond that which He was judged Himself at Calvary. Absolute personification. He he personalizes. He is intimately connected to His people Israel. Hold that thought. We're going to come back to it in a minute. In verse 15, He goes on, He says, Behold, I have made you a new sharp threshing sledge with double edges. You will thresh the mountains and pulverize them. You will make the hills like chaff. You will winnow them and the wind will carry them away and the storm will scatter them. Scatter them. But you will rejoice in the Lord. You will glory in the Holy One of Israel. Jacob the worm will not always be frail. Now this, I guess I kind of knew this, but I hadn't really seen it in this light before. That God has an awesome role for Israel to play. It's not just, oh, poor Israel, God's going to somehow get them through and they're going to come limping back into the kingdom. (laughs) We just barely made it after our hiding place. You know what? 144,000 Israelites will be doing the first three and a half years of the tribulation? Preaching the gospel, man. They're going to be involved. Well, turn over to Revelation. Turn over to the book of Revelation chapter 7. They're going to be involved in the greatest soul harvest, I think, that has yet been seen on this planet. More than we have seen in the last 2,000 years, perhaps. 
possible. Revelation chapter 7, and hold there for a moment, this whole thing that that the Lord has just spoken about, you're going to be a sharp threshing sledge, and you're going to take them down. Gang, as he goes through this, he, he depicts the mountains and hills being wiped out. They depict the large and the threatening nations before Israel. The wind and the storm back in those verses describe God's Spirit blowing these things away. But empowered by God's own Spirit, Israel becomes this sharp, threshing sledge with double edges. Double edges? Double edges. The phrase double edges is a Hebrew figure of speech that literally means, well, it's, it's the word pifiyah. Pifiyah in the Hebrew means edges of the mouth or literally sharp teeth. Sharp teeth. So this sharp threshing sledge, that's the English best we can do, it's a threshing sledge with sharp teeth. And he says, Israel, I'm going to make you this way. And hang on to Revelation 7. We'll get there in just a second. I was thinking about this, a threshing sledge with sharp teeth. And I was thinking about the first spring that we moved into our house. We had been in the house a year. And the next spring came along, and I kind of left the, the back 40 alone for a while. I wasn't really paying attention to it. And I noticed things were growing out there. But I thought, how fast can stuff grow? I'm from California. Nothing grows fast, you know. <laughs> You mow the lawn during the summertime maybe once, you know. And I didn't notice how tall it was getting, and it got taller and taller until I I went out our back door, and I had grass and weeds and all kinds of stuff, living creatures, you know, six, seven feet high out there. And so I went down to the local rental place and said, I got a problem. I got a lot of brush I've got to get rid of. And they said, you need a billy goat. I said, yes, I do. But I don't really want to feed him and take care of him. No, no, no. What you need is one of these. And they showed me the Billy Goat Outback Brush Cutter. This is awesome. It's it's a powered thing. It's got the handles. And basically, you got to be ready to move because that thing will just drag you right behind it. It's not a ride-on mower, but it's probably about that wide. And it just talk about shark threshing teeth. And I was just taking down everything. I turned it on and off I went, you know, and I'm cutting down trees and fences and outbuildings and just, ah, you know, couldn't stop. And this is the picture I get, this sharp threshing sledge. Israel, you're just going to mow them down. You're just going to wipe them out. But what is a threshing sledge used for? What does the word thresh make you think of? Wheat, harvesting, the threshing floor. This is not a a sledge, a sharp sledge for wiping people out. This is a sharp sledge for harvesting. And that's why we go to Revelation chapter 7 and listen to this at the, uh, about verse 4. I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Let's be clear, it is not the Jehovah's Witnesses. It's from every tribe of the sons of Israel. The Bible is absolutely specific. It amazes me how many cults and how many religious groups grab hold of this and say, Oh, that's us. We're the 144,000. Well, at this point in history, that means that you're out. There's already 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses who passed through the ranks, right? So, Sorry. 
of the sons of Israel. And then in verse 5, of the, of the tribe of Judah, Reuben, Gad, verse 6, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, verse 7, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, verse 8, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. All the tribes listed specifically. And then you get down to, one's missing, but that's we can't talk about that right now. Verse 9, he says this, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation, and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands and they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Then all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory, wisdom, thanksgiving and honor, power and might. Be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. So you already know the tune. Verse 13. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? And it's a leading question. By the way, shepherds, this is what you do. You ask educational questions. It's a leading question this elder is giving to John. The elder knows the answer, and he knows John probably doesn't, but he wants John to be looking at these people. He's saying, look, I want you to pay attention to this. Observe this. Who are these people? John responds, my Lord, you know. (laughs) And he said to me, these are the ones who come out, uh, note this, out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will spread His tabernacle over them. His tabernacle is a tent which moves. Which means wherever He goes, they go. Wherever they go, He goes. These are the tribulation saints. Now, if you've done the Revelation study, or you've been here around here long, we've talked about it. These are people who get saved after the church has been raptured, after... Believers of this age are home with Jesus during that seven-year tribulation period. First three and a half years, these people get saved. And it's a multitude that nobody can count. Such is the grace of God that even without the church in the world, His Word is still being heard. Even with the deception and the terror and the horror that goes on in that time, He's still saying, My hand is open to you. There's still an opportunity. You missed the right up. You miss the glory and the joy and, and some of the specific promises that, that now the church alone gets, you're not going to get. But I will still save you. And these are the tribulation saints. And I believe the sealed 144,000 of Israel will lead the charge in this great harvest. Well, why do you think that? Because that's the context. He describes a sealed 144,000. These are the ones who are protected through this time. These are the ones out there. Someone uh, put it this way, 144,000 Billy Grahams running around the earth. And I believe I've shared with you right now the number of total missionaries on the planet. Total missionaries, not just from America, but people sent from all nations to other nations. On the planet is around 70,000. So double that, and that's how many sealed Jewish missionaries who now have come to faith in Christ and know who He is, are spreading around the globe saying, we were wrong, He is Messiah, He's my Messiah, He can be your Messiah too. That's what it means. Go back to the chapter. I have made you a sharp threshing sledge with double edges. 
You're going to be sharp. You're going to be on top of it. You're going to be involved in this harvest. And this great harvest results again in multitudes of souls saying salvation. Praise God for salvation. And these are, as Revelation 7 says, those who came out from, or who are coming out from, in the literal Greek, who are coming out from the Great Tribulation. That 144,000 are this sharp threshing sledge. I believe that's exactly what Isaiah is referring to, what God's referring to in verse 15. By the way, why don't we see more of this today? Why is there a single empty seat in this fellowship on a Wednesday night. I'm not saying that to make anyone feel guilty. Hey, you're here. But why aren't people knocking down the doors of the barn? Why aren't churches packed out? Why isn't the church this sharp threshing sledge out there cutting down the wheat and harvesting souls and drawing people, bringing in the sheaves? Why? Why don't we see more of this? And I, I believe there are places around the world where it's going on. I'm talking about locally here. I'm talking about in Washington State, in Ireland and Skagit County. Why aren't we seeing more? Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge both the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now, I believe this with all my heart. That the word is not, it's not a brush cutter that goes out of control like me with the billy goat. The word is a threshing sledge with surgical precision to touch and change the heart of man. That being said, why aren't we seeing more soul harvesting in the church today? Because too much of our preaching lacks teeth. There's not enough bite. Because the Word of God has been dulled by modern preaching. Elihu, in the book of Job, chapter 34, verse 3, Elihu said to Job, this wise young man, says, "...the ear tests words as the palate tastes food." That's a good perspective. We take in the Word of God in the same way we take in meat, in the same way we take in food. But if what's going into the ear is soft fare, instead of a sure foundation, if it's milk toast, instead of meaty truth, saved people end up weak, and unsaved people have no reasonable truth to chew on. Which is why our president, I'm not going to harp on this, okay, maybe I will. Which is why our president today is standing in support of gay marriage. And he claims to be a Christian. I, I'm not going to judge that. But that's what he claims to be. How could a Christian stand for something that is so obviously unbiblical? Because they don't know the Bible. Because believers are chewing on soft things. And they're getting pop perspective rather than the truth. And the reason why I believe more people are not flocking to churches today is because if they walk in the door of the church, nine times out of ten, they're not getting a good steak. You can only really eat so much milk toast. Have you ever had milk toast? Okay. It's really kind of gross. Toast some toast, put it in a bowl, pour milk over it, and enjoy 
my dad ate that growing up in Texas, and so he kind of passed it on to me as a kid. And the only way I could eat this stuff is if I took about a half a bowl of sugar and dumped it in there. Then it was pretty good. <laughs> but it's soft, and it's not nourishing, and it doesn't grow, and it doesn't give strength. Only the true Word of God, preaching that has teeth. And that's, by the way, what the Hebrew writer railed against. He said, Hebrews 5.12, Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. He's an infant. And the church has shrunk back into a semi-infancy. And the word is not being preached with teeth anymore. I'll make a promise to you all. In fact, I'll make you a deal. I'll do my best by His Spirit to keep serving full platters of meaty truth. And you keep eating. Okay? Let's eat and feed together on the Word of God. Let's grow strong in the Word of God. And let's bring the Word of God to a lost and sick and dying and sinful world. It's not my words people need to hear to get saved. It's His Word. And as we'll see in Isaiah 55, he says, My word does not come back to me empty. I send it out and it accomplishes what I desire. But you know what? For it to accomplish what he desires, the word has to be sent out. Meaty truth. We need protein. Badly in these last days. We need to know what the truth is so we know where to stand. Now, back to Israel. This seemingly helpless, hapless people will not be a helpless, hapless people. There will be Jewish people coming to Jesus in droves in the tribulation. At least a third of all Israel will be saved. You know how that works? One third of all Israel that will be saved will come to faith in Jesus Christ. Because that's the only way you can be saved. And the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but through me. I've shared this with you all before, but in case you haven't heard this, when people say, Rick, do you believe the Jewish people are going to be saved because they're Jewish? No. I believe they're going to be saved because they believe in their Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. And they will. And that third who does are going to be a strong, fierce people. And the only reason, halfway through the tribulation, that they are led into that place of protection in the wilderness is it gets completely out of hand and God says, okay, job over, go hide. And they will. But they're not going to be running into the wilderness with their tail between their legs. They're going to be, (laughs) I can just imagine them shouting out verses as they're leaving, you know? This is going to be an emboldened people by the Spirit of God, the remnant of Israel. And this is where my perspective is shifted. Not a pathetic, weakling group of people, but the remnant of Israel are going to be a strong, threshing sledge with teeth, and they're going to see a great harvest. And that's pretty exciting. In the meantime, God considers their need. Verse 17. The afflicted and needy are seeking water, but there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them myself. As the God of Israel, I will not forsake them. He continues to call himself the God of Israel. I will open rivers on the bare heights and springs in the midst of valleys and I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land fountains of water. And I believe, by the way, not only is this talking about Israel and the coming kingdom and the land of Israel, but this may be just... Rick's kind of going off, okay? This is my perspective and I could be wrong. But I think this could be talking about that place in the wilderness where they're protected. 
And if it is, in fact, Selah, Petra, well, those of us who got to visit there recently, you know, there are, it's, it's a really, it's very dry, bone dry, barely anything grows in there, and yet there are water channels that are cut into the walls. When you walk into Petra, it's several miles walking in, and on either side, you notice what the uh, Nabataeans who lived there did was they carved channels. Remember that, Spence? And those channels run along so that as water comes down from different places during the rainy season, it fills into those channels and rushes right down into Petra. And I read this verse and I can even see this happening. I will open rivers on the bare heights, springs in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and dry land fountains of water. I'm going to see to your need, Israel. I'm going to look after my people. And now this this expands even to a greater picture. He says, I will put the cedar in the wilderness and the acacia and the myrtle and the olive tree. And I will place the juniper in the desert together with the box tree and the cypress that they may see and recognize and consider and gain insight as well that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. I'm going to do all these marvelous things. These trees, notice those specific trees listed. And God's not just kind of, you know, shooting off here. He's listing, I believe it's for a reason. Cedar, acacia, myrtle, olive, juniper, box tree, cypress. What's up with these trees? They're indigenous, for one thing. I mean, all these trees grow in the land today. Um, Many of these trees do have a water requirement to truly grow and, and flourish. But I don't think that the trees are listed because of their nature. I think God selected these trees because of the number. Because you may have noticed as we read through them, there are seven. So seven trees. What are you saying, Lord? I think the Lord is indicating I'm going to bring about a complete healing on the land. This land is going to be beautiful. And it's going to be a fully restored and paradise-like place once again. Isaiah 55 verse 12 tells us you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. Instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. And it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. An absolute topographical covenant. God says, I'm going to make a covenant right here and now that I'm going to change the topography of Israel. I'm going to bring it back to this flourishing state. It will be beautiful. Why? Why does He do this? Note why He does this. Verse 20 again, that they may see, that they may recognize, consider, and gain insight. God is saying, I'm going to give you evidence of my great love. (laughs) This evening, Anna Marie was in the kitchen and Cheryl said, hey, listen, I... We're going tomorrow to pick up Hannah's stuff from college. So we've got a lot of last-minute stuff that's going on in the house. It's complete, utter chaos. I left, I think, about ten minutes early just to come on down here. <laughs> Leave Cheryl in the midst of it. You know, it's, it's what I do. But <laughs> Honor Marie's there. Cheryl's like, I've got to take care of this, Honor Marie, because you love me. Will you just look after the little ones for a while? And Honor Marie goes, why do I have to do that because I love you? You know I love you. Why do I have to prove it to you? <laughs> I love how she thinks. God is saying, I'm going to evidence my love to you. And that's what I said to Anna Maria. I said, sweetheart, I know you love mom, but sometimes you show that you love someone by your actions. 
And God is saying, I am showing you how much I love you, how much I care for you. I'm laying this out for you that you may see and recognize and consider and gain insight that you can have reason to believe that I am the Holy One of Israel and that you are my people. And that what I said from the beginning, I have followed through on because I am faithful to you, Israel. God is a reasonable God. And we talked about that Sunday. He is a reasonable God. It is not unreasonable to come into the court of reason asking reasonable questions because God wants us to. He doesn't want us to have a namby-pamby faith. He wants a faith that's grounded in the truth and He gives us the truth so that we can be grounded. You know what's unreasonable? What's unreasonable is blind faith in false gods. Look at verse 21. Present your case, the Lord says. Bring forward your strong arguments. The king of Jacob says, Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome. Or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterward that we may know that you are gods. Indeed, do good or evil that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. Behold, he says, you are of no account, and your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination, and God is challenging here, calling out the false gods and idols of the world. And he's saying, bring it. Let's get real here. Bring your proof. I've got mine. Bring yours. Show that you are legitimate. We are reasonable in this course and we, in this court, and we will reason together. Prove your value through simple prophecy. That's why prophecy is in the Bible, by the way. Prophecy is the proof of God. It's the proof of His nature. It's the proof that Jesus is His Son. It's the proof that He is faithful. Prophecy is proof. It's not forecasting like a weatherman. He sometimes gets it right and sometimes gets it wrong. It's not like Nostradamus. I mean, man, if you say enough things are going to happen in the future, you're bound to be right sometimes. That's not prophecy. It's not that God is bound to be right on occasion. It is everything He says will and has taken place. Every single prophecy of Jesus' first coming, you know this, fulfilled literally. Every one. And so every single prophecy of His second coming will be fulfilled how? Stands to reason. And again, we are in the court of reason. And then the Lord hints again at that stunning prophecy of His own. You know, the idols don't answer. The false gods can't speak a word. It's emptiness, it's silence. And the Lord says, alright, here's my example. Verse 25, I have aroused one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, he will call on my name, and he will come upon rulers as upon mortar, even as the potter treads the clay. And we talked about Sunday, this is Cyrus. We will see him named when we get over into chapter 44 or chapter 45. And God's going to be very specific. And it's a pretty remarkable prophecy that Isaiah brings 150 years before Cyrus is born. But Cyrus the Persian comes from the north, Persia to the north of Israel, and he conquers from the east, that is Babylon, he conquers Babylon, and then from Babylon he spreads out. That's from the rising of the sun to the east, and so both from the north and the east both apply to Cyrus, Cyrus the Persian. Verse 26, God says, Who has declared this from the beginning that we might know? 
or from the former times that we might say, he's right. Actually, literally there, it's not he is right, it's just right. (laughs) Who said that? Who's declared this? That we might look at him and say, right on. (laughs) Right. Surely there is no one who declared. Surely there was no one who proclaimed. Surely there was no one who heard your words. Formerly I said to Zion, behold, here they are. And to Jerusalem, I will give a messenger of good news. But when I look, there's no one. And there's no counselor among them who, if I ask, can give an answer. What did Peter say? Always be ready to give an answer in season and out of season. And God is saying right here, Israel, I love you. I'm proving myself to you. I do it over and over through prophecy, but right now you need to understand I sent you as a messenger to bring this truth to the world and you're not even listening to me. And you cannot give answer for why you believe that I am your God. And by the way, that's part of the reason that the Israelites were involved in false gods. Because they didn't know enough of Scripture that had been given to them. They didn't understand enough of their own Torah law to know who their own God was. And because they didn't know who their God was, they started to draw out to maybe some of these other thoughts. And we can fall into that same trap. Oh, maybe not idolatry. But if we don't know enough of the truth of who God is and what His Word is, then we can start to fall in moral areas. We can start to whitewash it and water it down. How does that happen? When you don't know the Word, then you can't give answer. And God's people didn't know the Word. Who, if I ask and give an answer, behold, all of them, He says, are false. That word is aven in the Hebrew. It means trouble. All of them are trouble. Their works are worthless. Worthless. The word worthless means is effect, and it means not. Their words are not. And their molten images are wind and emptiness. And that word emptiness is the word tohu, which is the same word used in the first verse of Genesis where he says the earth was formless and void. Tohu. You're void. All of these things that you're putting your faith in are they're wind, trouble, not vain, void. There's nothing to them. This is the scathing but true rebuke of all false religion in history. No other religion, no other faith has spoken prophecy fulfilled. And none have done what God has done. 